Welcome to KG News Morning Magazine. It's November 7th of 2022. I'm your host, Christian Garibay. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear about a number of education issues on this year's state ballot. And CityCast Denver skeptically dives into the questions around the immersive art trend and why it seems to be taking off in the Mile High City. At the bottom of the hour, we'll hear the BBC headlines and then the Hightower Lowdown. After that, a public affair host, Frank Dubofsky, checks in with Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty. They discuss how the county's judicial system has returned to normal after almost three years of COVID-related changes and delays. The DA also provides an update on the King Super's shooting case and on the county's efforts to address homelessness. Then at 9 a.m., we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. After that, Doug Gertner will be in the Denver studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that is still ahead this morning, but first, these headlines with KG News, Kiara Damari. Layoff notices were among the first changes resulting from the purchase of Twitter by the world's richest man. Nearly 90 employees at the Boulder office of the social media platform received their virtual pink slips over email on Friday. The Colorado Department of Labor and Employment confirmed it has received notice of the mass layoff due to take effect January 4th. Many laid-off employees took to Twitter to discuss the news in shock. Among those who lost their jobs were all members of the company's human rights team, responsible for making social media use safe for users in authoritarian countries. Tesla founder Elon Musk officially bought Twitter late last month and claims the layoffs are necessary to make the company profitable. Twitter's new ownership has also announced plans to charge $8 a month for user verification. A judicial order has hit the pause button on the process to merge two of the county's largest grocery store chains. KGNU's Claire Purnell reports. Kroger, the owner of King Supers, announced plans last month to merge with Albertsons, which owns Safeway. A court in King County, Washington, issued an order Thursday to restrain dividend payouts that were supposed to happen today. A court in King County, Washington, issued an order Thursday to restrain dividend payouts that were supposed to happen today, thereby halting the merger process at least for a few days. Advocates and union workers nationwide expressed concerns about layoffs and labor protections in the event of consolidation. Consumer groups warned the merger would create a near monopoly in many areas of the country and concentrate price-fixing power at a time of historically high food inflation. The merger could be one of the largest grocery store mergers in U.S. history. For KGNU, I'm Claire Purnell. CBS News Colorado reports that Fort Collins Police Department is conducting an internal investigation into the behavior of one of its officers. Multiple people have come forward about what they say are wrongful arrests by Officer Jason Hafferman. At least nine people Hafferman arrested for allegedly driving under the influence say they were not intoxicated, and lab reports show neither alcohol nor drugs in their system at the time of arrest. Hafferman is currently on administrative leave for the duration of the internal investigation. The Colorado Supreme Court announced Friday that they will lower the score needed for students to pass the bar exam and become a lawyer in the state of Colorado. The new score for 2023 will be six points lower than the previous 276 minimum score. The Colorado Supreme Court instituted the 276 score in 1985. It ranked as the second highest bar exam score in the 41 states that use the system. Alaska's is the highest at 280. The new score of 270 will join 16 other states with the same test requirements. 
According to a news release, the National Conference of Bar Examiners are working on a new exam known as NextGen. The test will have different formats and different focuses. The news release also stated that the court will be seeking public feedback further along in the development process. Famous Colorado Avalanche announcer and analysis Peter McNabb has died at 70 years old. KGN News, Jack Armstrong has more. McNabb called Avs games for 26 years and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2021. I will remember Peter McNabb as the ultimate father of Colorado hockey, said Nuggets broadcaster Vic Lombardi to the Denver Post. McNabb announced that he was fighting cancer on September 29th of 2021. Even while going through treatment, McNabb still traveled with his team. His final season ended in the Avs winning the Stanley Cup. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong. Today is expected to be sunny across the Front Range, with the sun projected to set at 4.51 p.m. today. In Boulder, there's a high of 55 and a low of 27. In Denver, a high of 62 and a low of 35. In Fort Collins, a high of 54 and a low of 27. For KGNU, I'm Kiara Damari. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Christian Garibay. Education issues are on the ballot in a variety of ways this year. Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran spoke with Eric Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado, to find out more. Erica, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, how is education and education issues, how are they showing up on ballots around Colorado this election season? There's a really significant race on the ballot that for State Board of Education, there's a new at-large seat that everyone in the state will get to vote on, as well as um, candidates on the ballot in CD8, CD6, and CD5. This is an independently elected body that plays a big role in education policy in Colorado. We also have a number of ballot measures on the ballot um, related to education. Um, a key one is Proposition FF, and that has to do with um, funding school meals. And then education has been an issue in the governor's race and a number of our legislative races. Well, let's start by looking at the State Board of Education. Many people might not actually understand what role the State Board of Education plays in Colorado. Can you clarify exactly what this entity does? Yes, they hire the education commissioner. They oversee standardized testing and the school accountability system. This is a system that rates schools in terms of how well they think they're serving students. And they can extend help to schools that are struggling, but they can also intervene and order changes in schools that are struggling. So that potentially has a big effect on what happens locally. They also oversee teacher licensure um, and how easy or hard it is to become a teacher has implications for the teacher shortage. Um, And they also hear charter school appeals. So if a charter school is organizing in a district and the local school board votes it down, the charter school can take that appeal to the state board of education. So they affect what happens in schools in a number of ways. And they also set academic standards, uh, which determines what we think as a state that students should learn. That's turned into a really significant issue in this race because the state board is updating social studies standards and it's become controversial for the same reason that these issues have been controversial um, in front of local school boards and nationally 
these complex questions of how we teach history and race and gender and sexuality. So in terms of the candidates in the State Board of Education race, I mean, how is that national conversation or some of these debates and some of this division that we're seeing around curriculum, how is that showing up in the State Board of Education candidate races here in Colorado? This is an interesting question because there's almost two questions here. One is what the social studies standards should say. And we have um, Democrats, um, Kathy Plummer in the at-large race, Rebecca McClellan, who is the candidate in CD6 in Arapahoe County, and um, Rhonda Solis, who's the candidate in CD8 for Adams and Weld County, um, being very strongly in favor of more diverse um, social studies standards, more diverse perspectives represented in the curriculum. And then on the Republican side, in the at-large race, um, candidate Dan Malloy has said that um, he sees himself as a moderate, that he supports um, having more diverse curriculum, but also he really is concerned about activism in the classroom. He really wants local control to also be protected. And then you have more conservative candidates in CD8, Peggy Props, who previously served on the State Board of Education, you know, really would like to see a more traditional approach to teaching history. And Molly Lamar, who's a Cherry Creek parent, has said that she has a lot of concerns about the ways that schools are talking about issues around race and gender and sexuality, that she thinks things are just going too far. So you have that division among the candidates But then you also have this question of, um, should we extend this debate? Because technically the state board is actually supposed to finalize these next, in a few weeks, after the election, but before the new board takes office. And um, some of the candidates like Democrat Rhonda Solis and Republican Molly Lamar feel like this is so important. If the state board doesn't get it right, the new board should actually get an opportunity to make that decision And other candidates feel like this has taken up a lot of of time and energy. And regardless of what happens, we need to move on to other issues. Well, you mentioned their local control and one of the candidates who is really in favour of that. In terms of education, should we expect then future debates to really play out in a significant way in local school districts? Absolutely. And I think we already saw this in the 2021 school board elections, and I expect that we'll see it again. What happens in Colorado is that the State Board of Education sets the academic standards, which says this is what students should learn, but then it's up to local school districts to pick their curriculum, to pick their teacher training, and that's what we're really going to see show up in the classroom. And there's a lot of deference to local authority. School districts have a lot of power, and I think we'll see debates locally about how much the school board should comply with the state board decision on academic standards, depending on the political makeup of that community. And some school boards may say, we're not doing that because we disagree with it. And so I do expect that we'll continue to see these debates locally. Well, it's always worth remembering that uh, Governor Jared Polis actually was a State Board of Education commissioner. He served one term there. And so if we segue now to the gubernatorial race, education is a big component given Governor Polis's history on the State Board of Education, but also the fact that Heidi Canal is a regent at CU. So how is education playing out in the gubernatorial race? They've both made education a big part of their pitch to voters, though I think anyone who's listened to the debates knows that crime and the economy have have maybe played a bigger role this year. 
Governor Polis ran in 2018 on uh, making full-day kindergarten free to families and rolling out a universal preschool program. That universal preschool program is now on the books, but families won't actually get to benefit from, uh, it's going to be 10 hours a week of free preschool, won't actually get to benefit until fall 2023. Uh, Governor Polis's education pitch this year is that he's really laying this groundwork for kids to get a strong start and, and do well in school for years to come. Regent Ganahl is pitching uh, education savings accounts, and this could take a variety of forms, some sort of tax credit or voucher that families could use, for example, to offset the cost of private school or to pay for tutoring. And she's promoting expanding school choice and being sort of a voice for getting back to basics in education. Well, there was a statewide ballot measure around school funding in Colorado that didn't ultimately make it to the ballot. But is there anything happening locally, either mill levy measures in different communities around school funding? Because this seems to be a constant issue in the state of Colorado, but also locally. How do we fund education? How do we fund the infrastructure? Is there anything happening around that? Yeah, there are 19 communities this year that where the school district is asking voters for either um, either a bond or a mill levy override. These are both different types of property tax increases. So if you see a bond issue on your ballot, that might be to fund a new school or to fund some major school repairs. And if you see a mill levy override, that might be Um, an ongoing property tax increase that might fund higher teacher salaries or new programming. And a lot of school districts feel like the state funding just doesn't cover everything that they need to do. And so they turn to local voters to provide additional support. And on the one hand, this can be a great opportunity for a community to to sort of go above and beyond. But it also creates a lot of inequality around the state because not every community is as open to a tax increase and not every community can raise as much money. Some communities really don't have a lot of property wealth and so even a high tax increase just doesn't generate very much money. Well, Chalkbeat Colorado has a lot of information about how education is showing up on the ballot in Colorado this year, including a candidate questionnaire for those running for the State Board of Education. It's all at their website, co.chalkbeat.org. Erica Meltzer is the Bureau Chief with Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. And for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Maeve Conran. County clerk races have been getting lots of attention in the wake of the election security breach in Mesa County and unfounded claims that the 2020 election was stolen. The two candidates for Garfield County Clerk and Recorder have been addressing this in their bid for the open seat. Republican Jackie Harmon lives in Silt and has worked for the county for over 20 years. She decided to run after her boss, Democrat Jean Alberico, announced she was retiring after 16 years as county clerk. At a debate in Glenwood Springs earlier this fall, Harmon told voters she's proud of the job that the clerk's office is doing and she's ready to take the reins. We lead by fine example in the whole United States. Colorado elections are secure. They're bipartisan. It takes both neighbors to come in and run our elections. I've been proud to see that year after year in the 21 years, and that has not changed, even with the bad publicity or the comments that we're getting. Democratic candidate Becky Mahler lives in Carbondale. She runs her own paralegal business and has acted as a municipal election judge in the Valley. During the debate, Mahler told voters her background makes her a natural fit for the position. 
She says she wants to continue the great work the clerk's office has been doing and also help educate voters when it comes to how their elections are run. You know, be out in the schools, be out in civic um, organizations and just let people know what the processes are so that they understand. And if somebody comes up to them and says, you know, we're doing this, they can be like, well, that's not what I learned at so-and-so and just really open the gate so that people feel that they can come to the clerk's office and to me to ask questions. While Mahler acknowledged there can be value in electing someone like Harmon with direct experience in the office, she says there's also value in having a fresh set of eyes in the post. You are listening to The Morning Magazine. I'm your host, Christian Garibay. We'll be right back after this break. Between David Byrne's Theater of the Mind and Immersive Dali, the hottest trend in Denver art is the immersive experience. But these shows are very different from one another, and many of them feel like cash grabs. At least that's how they look to city cast host Bree Davies, a bona fide immersive skeptic. So, she called up Dr. David Thomas, aka the Professor of Fun, who also happens to be co-founder of Immersive Denver, to make the case for this new art form. So, David, I have to be honest with you from the start. I'm increasingly skeptical of the immersive art trend, mostly because it feels like a commercial venture at this point more than an artistic one. But I think if anyone could turn me around on this, it would be you. And I would love to start with your personal relationship with immersive art. Do you remember like the first time you experienced something that would be considered, quote unquote, immersive art? Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about immersive is all the examples predate the terminology. Sure. So, you know, these days we would, you know, gloriously include Disneyland into the immersive bucket. But I didn't think Disneyland was immersive when I was a kid. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> so so really, I'd say the first immersive thing for me was uh, Siobhan O'Glaughlin's Broken Bone Bathtub that Lonnie Hanson produced in Denver, maybe about five years ago. And uh, it was the first, like, just intimate piece of theater where the actress was, first of all, extremely vulnerable. She was sitting in a bubbly bathtub. But, you know, she was talking to the audience at... And, and that was like, that was immersive. And I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. I suppose the second big kind of touchstone was going to uh, the House of Eternal Return, the Meow Wolf's original exhibit down in Santa Fe. And again, people grasping for ways to describe this said it's immersive. So, so these days, immersive is a, it's, it's a, it's a big tent. And it's got a fuzzy boundary. And maybe you're standing in the shadow. You should come into the sunlight of immersive. How would you define immersive art for someone who says, I have no idea what that means? Yeah, this is such a lovely question, and it depends. Um, I think that the most common definition is is one that centers around the idea of immersive art is audience-centered art, where the audience plays a non-trivial role in the production of the art or entertainment. And, um, you know, I mean, that, that works great for theater because, you know, theater audiences are used to sitting, in a, you know, in rows and rows and looking at something through a proscenium. And so if the actors get out into the audience, like, hey, like the old Rocky Horror, you know, theatrical production, all of a sudden it feels immersive, right? Exactly. I think that when you move into something like Meow Wolf, where it's just this kind of like, you know, maximalist kind of freak show. It's a little harder to say, like, well, how is this audience centric? But it still feels like the art is there to serve you rather than you to serve the art. So, so I think that audience centric, you know, art is is at the core of it. 
Now, there's another definition that's not widely shared, but it's how I look at it. And it comes from my whole professor of fun stuff. And, you know, not to, to get too academic, but I think that um, I think fun as an aesthetic form centers the audience by asking the audience to make meaning, which I know sounds really pointy headed and, and highbrow. But really, all it means is normally you go to an art gallery and there's a painting there and either you get the painting or you don't. And if you don't get the painting, you talk to a docent and they explain to you its historical significance and its artistic relevance. And you kind of bask in its glory and your new education. I think the fun aesthetic operates different than that, than the beauty aesthetic. The fun aesthetic is like, I don't know what it is. You decide. And thus, Disneyland becomes a, a perfect test case for this. Because what does Disneyland mean? It means whatever you want. I mean, you just go there and you live out your fantasies. What does Casmanita mean? What does Meow Wolf mean, right? And so I think that to me, it's like really what, what signals immersive art is the audience centricness is really around the audience gets to participate in making meaning out of what their experience rather than just being like a churchgoer sitting there being given the, the, the words from the altar. I struggle with this, but I also see the benefits is like it, it's a tourist, it's a tourism draw, right? I, I, I just... Yeah, it's it's just a it's a constant struggle with me to think like are we are we just going to make a little are we going to make a little money in the moment or are we really building something that could make Denver stand out for decades to come as this hub for art. Yeah, I mean l let me give you the grand challenge. The grand challenge is um Denver has a great theater scene, it has a thriving kind of movie industry, but we will never be Broadway. We will never be Hollywood, right? We're never going to be the center of publishing. It's just there's certain places in the world that grab something and then they kind of own it and they become the magnet, right? Um, our thought is why can't Denver become the, you know, one of the hubs for immersive art and entertainment? We've got a foothold and, you know, that's what's exciting about something that's new. Is it going to be carpetbaggers? Is it going to be fly-by-night operations? Is it just going to be, you know, something that's, is, you know, dated as, as much as airbrushed vans in a few years? Or is it going to be people are going to look back in 20 years and be like, wow, how did Denver get started in this? And the answer is going to be, I don't know. We just saw an opportunity and people kept buying tickets. And so we kept building it. So immersive art is would be considered a hot trend right now. We're seeing it everywhere. And often, as you've you've kind of talked about, trends can get co-opted and sort of Disney-fied. But what do you think the future looks like for immersive art? Well, you know, that's a that's a, a great question. I, I think that um, the answer goes closer back to my notion of, of immersive as kind of this emerging art form. And I, I'll tell you the answer by way of an example. Um, traditional museums, natural history museums and art museums, you know, th they have been adapting pretty rapidly over the last 10 years to try to prop up some of their um, their attendance. And, and when you look at a lot of the things they do, like, you know, the final Fridays at the art museum or the, you know, like, I think the, um, the museum of nature and science did a like life on Mars. It could be like, you know, like you're on Mars. I think they're already leaning into immersive because people are hungry for these more complex experiences. And, um, this may have to do with the fact that, uh, our, our visual and material culture used to be really rare. You used to have to go to a museum to see art. You used to have to go to a movie theater to see a movie. And now it's like you can order junk through Amazon if you want, you know, material and you can watch anything you want on your computer. So, so I think that maybe some of the traditional ways we have shown art. Now people are like, I want to touch it. I want to interact with it. I want to, uh, you know, and so I, I'm going to just say, 
I think the future of art and entertainment is going to look more immersive and maybe the term immersive will fade out mm-hmm. because, you know, fine art has a has a nasty tendency to uh, change its mind about what's fine art because, uh, you know, like, let's just take Banksy, you know. Yes. <laughs> if, at first, Banksy was a finger in the eye of the fine arts. And now the fine arts are kind of like, no, no, we, 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 he's us. We, 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 we have extended our boundaries. They're the Russia of, of, of aesthetics. They'll take over anything they can get, that fine art world. <laughs> well, thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much. My pleasure always. And you got to get out there and see some more immersive shows. That's what I think. <laughs> I do. I need to go to Theater of the Mind for sure. And... Maybe I will give a Van Gogh a chance. There you go. You just heard an excerpt from CityCast Denver, the local Denver daily news podcast. Learn more about subscribing to the podcast at denver.citycast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Christian Garibay. Special thanks to Kiara Damari, Jack Armstrong, Claire Purnell, Alexis Kenyon, Maeve Conran, and the CityCast Denver crew for their contributions to today's program. If you'd like to comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave us a voicemail at 303-447-9911. We play the messages back on Tuesdays during the Morning Magazine. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower, and then... A public affair with Frank Dubofsky. That's just after these news headlines from the BBC.